right, round six, here we go. Welcome to another episode of Radical Humanity. My name is Ben Hoover, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and you have entered into the series where I am discussing the Beatitudes. And uh, and so, uh, as I've been... Uh, as I said, this is this is part six, round six, as I've called it, and there's uh, this is an eight part series, and I'm going into this just just to revisit some of this. I'm going into the uh, the Beatitudes, which is this little section uh, in the ancient writings where when Jesus uh, shows up on the scene and uh, he he gives this really fascinating, intriguing. Uh, kind of foreign, sort of um, grand uh, uh, state of the union sort of address to the culture around him, to the audience around him, where he talks about humanity living in a very different way, uh, completely foreign, maybe not completely foreign, but uh, mostly foreign uh, to, to humanity at large or the culture at large. And uh, and the way he starts out this this big speech is he starts it out with what's called the Beatitudes, which are these eight statements of blessing. Um, and uh, as I've shared in the previous episodes, and and um, and I will continue to share this. Uh, I I really encourage you to not listen the, to this until you've listened to the prior episodes because they build off each other. Um, they're, they're done in sequence because that's the way I believe Jesus talked about it. So I, uh, I caution you, I warn you that if you listen to this, you're probably going to wonder what the hell's going on. What am I talking about? Even though I do summarize, uh, the, the, the past, uh, the past blessings, um, you're, you're gonna, you're gonna kind of scratch your head here and wonder, wonder what in the world am I talking about? So please listen to those. And, uh, um, now, the Beatitudes, these blessings, are these really fascinating statements that Jesus makes. And I was fascinated by them because a professor had talked to me, or had talked to the class when I was in my grad school program. And he, and he pointed this out, that he mentioned that there's, there's this progressive journey where a person's being emptied, and then they feel hungry, and then they, 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 they lose something, and then they, they return to this emptied state, and then they... Uh, this hunger arises in them, and then they search to be filled. And that stayed with me ever since. And then finally, last year, I wrote on the Beatitudes for myself. And now, and I walked away from it, and now I've come back, I've returned, and I've uh, uh, revisited this, and I've reworked my writings, and I've scrapped some of them entirely and, and, and rewrote them just from scratch without even reading them or looking at them because there's this, you know, this growth over the past year has brought about this uh, this this more uh, this this greater understanding insight that uh, now I can incorporate into these writings, and so uh, so these blessings that Jesus talks about, uh, as as I shared, they're this as I see this con- this movement of conversion, and it's this conversion of shedding the the old ways, the old self, the attachments we had, the the religion we were uh, safely connected to, and we're leaving that and returning to this nakedness, the state that began as in in our childhood as as children, uh, that got covered up with defenses, with 
uh, with this, uh, this, this inner loneliness that we've turned to things to fill up in the external world, to, to this dependency on the outer realms and people and objects or so on and so forth that we've used to try to cure this, this, this deep loneliness in ourselves to feel satisfied, to feel uh, certain about life. And, um, and, and as we shed that, we go through this painful process, but then we start to wake up to ourselves. And that's the conversion is, is really this, this movement, this merging, this transformation, this metamorphosis, this evolution. How many words can I use? Um, uh, into finding who we are in the world and living from that groundedness, that, that centeredness, that's that, that, uh, that place in ourself. And, and that's, that's, uh, has this, there's the security inside, the strength inside. So Jesus talks about this and you really have to kind of, you'll wonder like, what the hell am I talking about? How do I take these statements, these, 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 basically these one sentence statements and how do I uh, unravel that and make sense of it? Well, I could be way off just so you know. You could hear this and just say, he's totally full of shit. He doesn't get it. But here's the thing. The, the, these ancient writings are so rich that they're, they're, they're set in a way that's not literal. And we often read these things very literally. And I have to do a little bit of digging to understand it. And, um, and so this whole conversion process, I believe, is universal. It's not... We have to get people on the same team and believe the same thing for, you know, as an investment or this insurance to secure our way or, or in the afterlife. No, this is about living life in the now, present, richly engaged, uh, experiencing life with great meaning. And in fact, giving it meaning. Um, and so, so this is what I believe Jesus is communicating. <clears throat> now, so, so I've, I've, delved into each of these statements and the first one starts with being poor in spirit and that means we're we we lose the the objects the the illusory and elusive objects of that i would say represent our attachment figures the the parents that we longed for the kind of parenting and connection we really deeply needed that we weren't fully truly given um, and so we live with this then lack, and then we start to attach to objects in life. And, and when I say object, it's, I mean, substitute anything in there. It's a lover. It's a leader. We turn, we turn God, the divine, this thing beyond us that's bigger than us into this object form. We, you know, drugs, sex, whatever it might be, we, um, we objectify it, and then we orbit our life around it, consumed with trying to, to extract from it to feel a sense of satiation inside of ourself, um, to, to, uh, to curb this hunger. But this, um, and so this loneliness lives in us, and then what happens is this meaningless experience pierces through the, 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 the objects. We, they now, we see them for what they are. They're just benign. They're impotent. They're not going to, there's no cure. There's no magic. They're not going to provide that. And what we do is then we go through this disorientation, and we go through this loss, this mourning, which is the next stage, this, uh, that, that we mourn the loss of what we attach to. There's a death there. There's a death even to... Um, the veneer of ourselves, who we thought we were. So there's this whole unraveling going on in our in our uh, the, the the core of us, an existential crisis, um, 
and and so there's a loss of our of our identity that we we securely fastened to and 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 we start to lose uh, the the meaning of the objects that we accumulated and um, and so this this loss right when we realize we don't have anything we have nothing we possess nothing is a better way to put it we're impoverished internally that we then mourn we grieve this loss as if we lost a, um, you know someone close to us in a way and 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 that does happen literally too we we might lose people we pull away from people we um, there's a distance a disconnect that naturally happens which then moves us into this this place of meekness, this meek state position. And that's a tenderize. I see that as a, as a, there's this tendering, tendering, tenderizing of our soul, of our heart, of our spirit, of our, our, our entire self. We return to this state of vulnerability where we're open. Um, it's the, the, like the, the washing, the water's washing, smoothing out the roughness of rock, that, that this is what happens, is all the debris, all the inhibitions, all the obstructions that we've lived in, the toxicities, the pollution, things that, that have kept, that have blocked us, barricaded us from our, um, our, our true self, is washed away through this mourning process. And then, um, and so we, again, we, we find uh, we, we find ourselves back in this vulnerable place, this place of nakedness, open, um, exposed, uh, um, malleable in a way. And then what comes from that is then Jesus says that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they'll be satisfied. <clears throat> and so those that then uh, when uh, this 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 hunger resurges in them, but it's a hunger that has driven them from the beginning just to find meaning and, and certainty and satisfaction in objects, but it's the same hunger. But we're more connected. We're more grounded. Um, there's, a, there's a growing consciousness in ourself, and it's this hunger, this fuel, this propellant that, that pushes us into the external world to search, to seek, to find who we are because we're experiential beings. In order to learn who we are, we have to experience life. Go out and date in relationships. Go try jobs. Go explore countries. Go live in foreign lands and 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 live with people you've never lived with before. So on and so forth. Try this. Try that. Try that's what I mean. Is that there's the searching, and now it becomes this boldness, instead of it being rooted in insecurity and fear and terror and having to have the answers to feel safe. No. We now live in question mode in this beautiful exploration that's so intrinsic to us that we, it's, that we can see in children. And by the way, I believe children are the, really the, the prophets, the preachers, the evangelists, so on, the, the leaders of the world, that those are the ones that are teaching us the path again to find ourselves. And so, um, and so we now uh, uh, we orient ourselves in this way of, of interacting with the outer and inner worlds. The, the, with ourselves. And in that, there's this quest to feel satiated inside, satisfied. But it's different. It's, so, it's a different kind of satisfaction. It, it, again, it, doesn't, it can't be extracted from the outside world, but, but it does happen when we engage in the outer world. And so an example would be like if you go out and date, and instead of this, the first person you meet that you're attracted to, that's someone attracted 
to, to uh, that's attracted back to you. I'm sorry, that you're, that was confusing. That yes, you're attracted to and they're attracted to you in return. And, and this part of you lights up and says, this is it, this is the person, right? And then, and then we lose our, we don't even, we're not even entirely uh, genuine because we're so, uh, we're anxious, we're scared, we're, we want to hold on to this person. And, and make them this, we turn them into this object that's going to uh, complete us, make us whole. And then we realize that that doesn't work out. Um, but instead, we now approach the dating life through, after this, these painful experiences, these breakups, these divorces, this, this dissatisfaction and, and, and heartbreak and the excruciating ache that comes from that, we start to learn, ah, oh, this is a journey. This is a journey of finding what I really want. This isn't, I don't even think this is who I really wanted. And this isn't even who I was. And so this, this uh, intermingling, this, uh, this mutual reciprocating dynamic of engaging with the outer world and ourselves uh, allows us to develop more insight into what we want, into to what, our, what our desires really are. There's almost, there's a, um, an enlightening of that. There's a greater illumination. There's a, a finer attunement. And, um, and so then we approach the dating world, for example, with just this openness of, I'm just going to go learn. I'm going to go experience. I'm going to engage with this person. If I have sex, I'm going to have sex and see if we connect more. All this, and there's just, there's no fear or restriction there. We, we, we live, we begin to become more attuned and engaged with our inner selves and the messages going on of what feels off. And, and, we, and instead of consuming and, and possessing the first person that comes by, rather we, uh, we learn to interact with them in a genuine, connected way. And we see if that's reciprocated, and we see what builds from there, and, and it grows. But there isn't this emergency and this desperation. I'm speaking by personal experience, um, or from personal experience. And then what comes from that in this process of finding, of seeking who we are, we also begin, then Jesus moves into this next place. And again, this isn't some just some nice, nice, or, nice and neat organized categorical stages. It's just they all kind of mix together in a way. But there is still movement as well. Um, it's like a spiral sort of uh, uh, journey. So then he, he, he follows this hunger and thirst portion with with blessed are the merciful for they'll receive mercy and this merciful uh experience position embodiment happens as we in, as we go through this uh interactive process of finding ourselves out in the world out in life and existence and this merciful um which uh, as i talked about in the last episode i um i reframed it because it, i feel like it's so so and i'm going to judge this but it's so badly misinterpreted that it it, it it's interpreted as it coincides or it's synonymous with like sin and judgment and and paying penance but no no mercy is way richer than that there's this compassion there's this earthiness this groundedness um humor comes from this uh, in this in this place of being where we can laugh at ourselves where we can feel pain and we can feel the rage and we can feel the loss and we can you know, and, and, but as and, and partner with this, and we allow ourselves to express um, the the emotions that come through the the journey, come with the journey of of discovering who we are, of evolving into our true selves. And so this this merciful state 
becomes us. And, uh, and one of the things that I discovered in that, that incorporated is that, that laughter is a, is a key thing. And uh, because that's been something that was often missing in myself. I mean, it would come out in times, but but in but often here and there, and we get clouded over with with judgment and seriousness, and I have to, and and I would get called out on that stuff, and I didn't like it. But now, now as I've I've um, addressed this stuff, and as I've seek after pleasure and enjoyment and embrace life fully, I begin to laugh at it. And laugh at my experiences. I had moments where I tell myself, "You're so serious, Ben. Like life is just not that serious." And sometimes I have those moments where I'll, I, I will I'll remind myself of that. Of it's, it's not that serious. So laughter comes from this, this healing laughter where we can we can find the humor in our own stumbling experiences of life, trying to figure out what the hell is going on, who we are, and whatnot. But this merciful uh, experience, it first becomes ingested in us. And really, it's also modeled through other people who are genuine, guiding us through this process, helping us, um, they become sort of the conscious light bearers for us, helping us to see uh, our, ourselves, what's, what's going on in our emotions, what's going on in our behaviors, and they do it non-judgmentally. And when that becomes internalized, um, which again was ideally meant to happen in our childhood, um, but that doesn't always plan out or play out well, and so it derails us, and then we end up finding people that reparent us, whether it's a therapist, it could be a religious leader, it could be um, uh, uh, some elderly person, you can, I mean, so on and so forth. Um, and, and so, and it doesn't have to be someone who's even older than you. I'm, there's a majority of my clients are older than me and, you know, and I've still in a way become a parent. I represent, uh, a, a parent to them. So, so, so this becomes ingested when we go through these experiences, when I interact with life, when we start, when the margins start to open wider and we're not so constricted and we realize I'm loved there's this deep, intrinsic uh, knowing, core knowing that I'm loved and that love guides is guiding us and compelling us and drawing us forward and drawing us into ourselves and drawing us into richer, vibrant, dynamic connections um, on an individual and uh, uh, um, uh, systemic, uh, interpersonal dimension. And so we can offer this mercy this compassion, this humor, tears, uh, rage, enjoyment, all of that to other people as they travel, as they go through their own personal journeys of self-discovery. So, whoo, I made it through that. Hopefully that makes sense. Um, Which now then brings me to this next section. This is a big one. I feel like the... um, this is a heavy hitter, and I think the next two are also heavy hitters as well. So, um, so I'm a little, I'm a little anxious, but I'm a little excited. I'm kind of nervous seeing where I'm going to go with this, uh, uh, even though I've have the written piece already done and I have it in front of me. Uh, I, um, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. So, on uh, on that note, here's the next one. So let me, uh, well, where do I start? You know what? I'm just going to go into it. So, <laughs> that didn't even make any sense. So, um, 
So before I actually clarify what the next statement is that Jesus makes, let me talk about two stories. So the first one, I would say, is semi-fictional. It didn't maybe happen exactly like this, but in a way it did. So here, imagine for a moment that you've lost something that's valuable to you. It's some really important object. It's a family heirloom. It's something of significance. For whatever reason, it's gone. Lost. You don't know where it is. and At, le- at least it's out of sight somewhere. And now think of the experience that, that overtakes you, it consumes you, when you've realized you've lost this really precious object. And how you, you become this desperation, this anxiety, this, uh, this disorientation turns up in you. And you frenetically overturn any items, large, small, that are in your path, that, are, that might be hiding this object, shadowing it from your presence. And this chaos takes over your mind the more you, you can't find it. You become more frantic. And it ignites this uproar, consumes you, it fuels you until you obtain the hidden object. And then in moments of this frantic searching and, and, and the, the unsuccessfulness of, uh, of obtaining it, you begin to imagine, you might even begin to believe that this is gone, it's done, it's lost. And then this hopelessness swells in you, and you feel yourself beginning to surrender to the seduction of despair. But then there's, there's this force within you, something in you that stirs potently enough to keep searching. i got to keep going. It, it compels us to go right back out into the, to the, to the fields to search. And so finally, though, after hours and hours of tireless investigation, you find yourself relieved, excited, ecstatic to find this object in your presence. It hasn't vanished. In fact, it's just been shoved somewhere, probably unconsciously, unknowingly, in the recess of your room. Recess, recesses. And this peace returns, and, and, and it quiets this unnerving atmosphere in yourself, and you settle back. To the present. Story number one. Next story. This actually happened. So I was sitting in a coffee shop one morning and I felt compelled to go. I don't often feel that, but I did. And I brought my iPad and I decided I was going to go right. And now during this time, I was attempting to piece together this this lofty theory, trying to connect some points between this characteristics of humanity, trying to connect vulnerability and genuineness and authenticity and uh, freedom and, you know, all this junk. (laughs) Not junk, really important stuff. So I was trying to piece all this stuff together. But then, in the midst of me writing, I stopped. I looked up. And I I, I looked around. A homeless man had walked in and sat at a table, and he was listening to music. And another gentleman who I recognized acknowledged this person's presence. And he went and got him a drink and brought him to it. And then to the right of me, sitting at another table, there were two friends, mothers, 
who were engaging in dialogue and um and and their children were were creating quite a storm a noise storm around they were joyfully and energetically kind of displaying their presence around the shop but then just behind them was another table with a group of men and they were dressed in kind of similar apparel i mean they weren't wearing the same outfits just you know kind of had the same vibe going on and they greeted each other in this masculine fashion laughing together talking and while i was watching this i had my earbuds in i was listening to music which is what I often do when I'm writing. And so the sounds of the environment were often muffled. I could hear them a little bit through the sound. But during this moment, as I was scanning the room and watched everyone quietly, something happened in me, is the best way I could put it. Now, normally, and I wouldn't say, when I say normally, I don't say it's like all the time, but normally I might have looked around at the people and made some kind of judgment, some kind of internal criticisms about their appearance or the way they interacted or the, the, the common expressions they, uh, they reciprocate to each other that's related to gender. But none of that was in me at the time. None of it. It was gone. This judgment was non-existent. But instead, there was this fondness and appreciation that welled up in me for everyone in that room. And I didn't even, I didn't interact with anyone. Literally, I, I don't even think I did. Actually, there was, oh, I didn't interact, but there was, um, there's a friend of mine who, and he owns the coffee shop, and that's, that's, that's where I was. And there was this moment towards the end, I never did it, but I, I, I was so moved that I was going to go and tell him how much I appreciate him, but I never did. Anyway, so when I'm sitting there, uh, I don't have any interaction with anyone, but this fondness, this warmth uh, churns in me. I'm, I'm swelling with this. And I felt this overwhelming delight for all. I mean, and, and, and then what happened, to make it even weirder, is that these tears cascaded down my face. There was this love and warmth that saturated me imbued me, infused in me. And, this mo and at this moment, I felt, I felt so present and free and alive. <laughs> Imagine that. I was writing about that too. I felt that in myself and in my capacity to enjoy others. And it was unpolluted by evaluations that really would have uh, uh, facilitated a distance with people. It was a, a, this, such an alien, foreign, profound moment. I mean, I've kind of experienced that before, but in more vulnerable interactions with people, but not, not like this in a way. Or maybe I just didn't pay attention to this enough. But this was a profound moment where it really, I dog-eared that. It, it, it stayed with me. And, and it was this experience of what felt like this otherworldly connection to all, even though I was just sitting there by myself and to myself. It was so incredible, and yet it was so foreign, and then it disappeared. So that's story number two. If you think that's weird, if you're wondering where the hell I'm going with this, bear with me. Hang on, strap in, buckle up, 
Let's let's go. Let's travel, right? So Jesus then this launches me into then then Jesus makes this statement after he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. He follows it with this fascinating line that blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now what the hell do you do with this? Because this statement how many words are there? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. I mean, roughly around that, depending on your translation you read. It, it, like, what is this? What does this mean? It's just a statement. Ah, but here's the thing. And you unravel it. There's so much story to this. Because why would he make this statement? And why would he say it this way to the audience he was talking to? And how does that connect to me? So the audience back then, if we're centered around the pure statement, the audience back then would have understood this pure word. It was an ubiquitous presence in their culture and language. In fact, uh, purity was the, uh, the objective, the outcome they pursued when it came to ritualistic ceremonies and sacrifices. Right? That this, back then, if you read the Old Testament, there were all these rules and regulations and ceremonial practice and whatnot. And part of that were these cleansing rituals. That when one uh, transgressed, that they would go through these, uh, these practices, these, again, these, these, these rites, these liturgies in a way, to purify themselves. So this, these cleansing rituals were a backbone to the religious culture and tribe throughout history. Now, um, so here's the thing. When one, as I said, when one would commit or, or, or participated in some transgressive act that was in accordance with the, you know, with the standards and laws, when they, when they crossed the lines of society and the divine, then they were required to participate in the bathing and the sacrificial practices to inoculate themselves from the impurities that supposedly uh, consumed them. Um, and so these impurities, right, that, that were considered impure from these societally determined deviant behaviors, and I put them in quotes, deviant, that they would then have to wash themselves. And it was essential to do this, to restore oneself to an acceptable position before their society and God. So they were doing it to enter back into society, to re-engage, to reconnect with their community. But here's the thing. That Jesus, man, he talks about purity on an internal level when he says, blessed are the pure in heart. Now the focus that, that humanity or that the culture he was speaking to, the focus was always on the behavioral. And it was dependent on the standards set by society. So it was always driven, contingent on the outer world, on the external. But here Jesus talks about purity occurring on the inside. So, so they're so used 
to cleansing themselves on a, on a phys- physiological behavioral level that would somehow restore harmony within themselves and and uh, and and really essentially restore restore harmony with themselves to others. But here Jesus talks about this happening in our internal framework. Now, throughout history and and present in our existence today, humanity has struggled with understanding behavior or human behavior on a global and on a personal level. We've scratched our head wondering what the hell's going on and 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 you know, it's it's vast our mystery our, our perplexity when it comes to um, understanding behavior, our actions. Now usually, and this is my theory, is usually this obstruction in our comprehension is really stemming from the toxicities of shame and judgment. And I'll explain. Now, regardless of the direction expressed, whether inward or outwards onto others, we've been consumed by shame and judgment in reaction to our choices. So because of that, we, we, we react in ways where we try to sort out uh, and create methods to regulate and extinguish these ominous voices that, that plague our soul in, in insidious ways. All right. So, um, <clears throat> so typically... Like if we were to look at it on an individual dimension, when we're in the throes of shame and judgment, what happens? Well, when we feel that instinctually, there's this reflexive pulling away from ourself consciously. We don't know what's going on. We just judge it. We think it's bad. It's wrong. It shouldn't be there. And then we immediately uh, pummel ourselves with what sh- what is right, what we should be doing, and we shouldn't be doing this. Like I mean, this is so embedded and entrenched our humanity. We do this to ourselves and we do this to others. And so what happens is when we experience the shame and judgment, we'll violently tear ourselves apart mentally, verbally, sometimes physically. This is where people were cut or they'll use drugs, you know, or they'll eat a lot or whatever it is. And so what happens is we become engulfed by disgust or hatred. This is what shame is. It's this internalized anger. And then we start searching for something because it's, we're trying to rid ourselves of, this, uh, of this, these horrific feelings that really engulf us, that really overtake us. They swallow us up. And we start searching for something that's going to eliminate, extinguish this, quiet this, these, this, this, these, this caustic presence that's so suffocating. Now, here's the thing. Often we'll associate shame with the behavior itself. And we're convinced that, that this is the enemy. It's what we're doing. That's the problem. We've got to get rid of it. We've got to stop it. We've got to change it. And we judge, we, we, we judge this to be the enemy that terrorizes us. So to combat this, what we do is then we gallantly, right, we, we um, sort of passionately or enthusiastically we uh, strategize methods to annihilate this. We engage in more external... In other words, we, we basically engage in more externally acceptable behaviors that we believe is going to restore us, that we're going to rekindle ourselves back 
into our system standards. We'll do better. Right? I'll do more. I'll stop doing this. I promise I'll do I'll help you out more. I'll do right. And we broadcast this valiantly to others. We we're in the moment. We're emotionally driven and we, we make these promises and we'll say, Oh, I'm gonna stop, I promise. And that's usually because we're so threatened at losing the other person that they're upset. And so we, we make these promises, they're gonna change. We promise them. We even uh, uh, believe if you believe in God, whatever you think God is, that there we we uh, we cast these promises out into the ether and we say, oh, I promise God, I won't do this again. Just give me another chance. Help me. Help me get my family back. Help me do this. Help me get my job. So on and so forth. And we promise that we'll return. We'll never return to these quote unquote criminal ways. And I put them in quotes because that's, in a way, how we've judged it or how society's judged it. But the, the issue with this, with these promises, with these emotionally charged promises that really come out of fear, is that it's shortly lived. And then we find ourselves once again engaging in these acts that we hate ourselves for. And, and it, it just deepens the perplexity in understanding the reasons why. We don't know. We're lost. And so the cycle of interaction becomes so powerful that we feel a loss of control. We keep going after it. We keep looking for something that's going to satisfy it. We go on and on and on and on. And then we keep falling into depression, despair, and this terror and the shame. And it's just this vicious cycle that just is unending. And we're imprisoned to these impulses. These impulses are driving us to go and seek. But then we feel horrible about it. And then we try to find ways out of the seductive grasp. I mean, this is what happens. We, we, we can call it addiction if you want to. Sometimes it doesn't even happen at that intensity, that kind of intensity. Um, and so, so this, this is ravaged. This has been a pandemic in our humanity. Is the struggle with shame and judgment. And this is what we're talking about when we're talking about the, the cleansing rituals in the past that this is, this is this trying to, to reconcile, trying to work out these feelings inside of ourselves, these things that come up that cause so many problems that we externalize into other people, that we project onto them. We project our shame. We project our, our, our judgments onto them. We hurt them as well because there's this hurting inside of ourselves and we have no clue what to do with it. Now, so the, these, the, these tyrannies of shame and judgment, they've been constant tenants, residents in our humanity, traversing across time. And so this whole religious purification system that we see in the story of the Israelites, it's birthed out of this external and internal presence of shame and judgment that we then associate to, to, in a way that, that this must be coming from this dissatisfied higher source. It must be that the gods are angry or God is angry, upset, and, and, and teaching me something. So we associate this, this internal struggle, this, this, what plagues us, that it must be coming from a higher power. And this matrix of shame and judgment and cleansing rituals, they're, they're, they're so eerily similar. They're, they, they're, they're so, uh, um, they're, we're, today we're not far away from that. We may have our different interventions of dealing with it. But 
they're still similar in the prescription and methods of addressing this shame uh, plagued behavior towards others and ourselves. We quarantine things, we go to groups, we take medication, we do whatever it is to, to, um, to, to remedy the struggle. But here's the issue. The shame and judgment when we can identify it for what it is and we often need others who are aware of that in themselves to be able to point that out. You can't see that without someone else illuminating it because they've seen it in themselves and so on and so forth. But the shame and judgment actually has a source that when we recognize it, when we confront the sources of it, can actually change the course of our lives and the way we engage with others. So, um, so remember that, that when I, um, when I, uh, in the in the previous section, in the merciful section, I talked about how this internalization of shame and judgment are messages from our external surroundings, and we're haunted by these ghostly toxicities because. The people, the others in our lives, those were the ones that delivered these messages. They were the ones in various ways, whether it was nonverbal or, or direct or indirect, that, that uh, expressed shame and judgment towards us. Their own shame and judgment that they've internalized from their experiences it is passed now to us. So it's this generational toxicity. And so, and so what happens is that when we haven't been guided lovingly in differentiating, and what do I mean by that is separating from our parents on a psychological, emotional, self-level. Right? When we haven't differentiated from them or the, the external. And instead, as we, as, we, uh, as we engage as kids, as we try to, as we try to figure out life as children, and we're at the mercy, dependent on our parents to help guide us, that instead when we're judged or shamed in various ways from them, then what happens is this infuses into us, and we remain psychologically entangled with them, and they're in this voice, their voice, of judgment and misdirected anger, which is shame, right? which is the shaming experience. It, it, it becomes ingested. So then the result is we react to ourself and the various parts of ourselves in a way that our sources of love reacted to us, engaged us. And so judgment terrorizes us towards anything sometimes in us or specific parts of ourselves. We, whether it's anger, we hate ourselves for, for, for feeling angry, for rage, for hate, uh, for our gender our sexuality, for crying, for our own personal passions and desires. For instance, if you're a boy and, you're, and, and you love to dance and you love to do art and your father says you're a faggot, that you're, um, that you're a, a, a pussy, whatever that is, we ingest that as kids. And then what happens is we don't ever want to go near that, even though that was a desire of ours, an innate desire. 
So instead of our parents cultivating our true selves, providing the soil for us to grow and find who we are, rather we're, uh, we, we're delivered this insecticide, this pesticide that withers our true self, that causes our genuine, honest, whole self to pull away. And then we, it suffers, gripped, strangled by the vitriolic talons of judgment. And so what happens from that is we carry these multiple fissures or these splits inside of our psyches. We push parts of ourselves away. Those parts that keep coming up and we'll push them away out of fear. And really the fear is judgment. And what happens is our true selves end up becoming imprisoned. And we quiet this genuine voice inside of ourselves. And so the full, whole, genuine self was never invited out. Instead, it was trampled down by our parents. And it was trampled where we switched into the survival mode that we then learned to live trying to satisfy our parents, trying to master the standards of satisfaction tied to our parents. So, so if dad made that comment that you're a fag if you love to dance, but he loved football, oh man, we're going to do everything we can to play football. All right? Or a daughter is judged because she's supposed to be in the kitchen with this or do you know something that, that um, some kind of patriarchal judgment. Well, the daughter then is, is you know, it's going to ingest that. And she might even rebel against dad and say, fuck you, <laughs> and, and live a life, but always in reaction, in defiance towards dad, never really her true self. Or she might not even become this or that even though she yearns for that. So, so anyway, we end up, if that makes sense, we end up um, haunted, consumed with having to please those outside of ourselves, specifically our parents. But if we could never even really satisfy, then what starts happening potentially is that we then rebel. We act out, and the acting out one, by the way, is is healthy. <laughs> They're the ones that is, are bringing the truth out. They're the ones that are uh, giving this, uh, accentuating this exclamation that something's off in the system, right? But the person that rebels, then, then they might rebel in a way that every decision they make is fueled in resentment and opposition, a fuck you, to drive a sword in the heart of our attachment figures that hurt us, to get them to see the pain. I mean, that's why we'll do things to cause pain in the ones that have created pain in us. So they wake up. That's the attempt for them to see us. But either way, whether we react in rebellion or whether we uh, push ourselves down and, and uh, attend and appease our parents, that the self, the actual self, early in life suffers suppression and becomes lost in the shadows of our own inner worlds. And so this tactic, this instinctual tactic, which is done in survival, comes up in the hopes of ascertaining some semblance of care and connection 
from our sources, from our caregivers. So, therefore, we put on a mask. And the majority of our actions are now governed by external acceptance. Trying to prove to our parents, to our societies, to the world at large, who we are. And to see us. Right? Even though it's artificial, it's fabricated, it's not entirely genuine. It's not fully who we are. But there's this demand, this urgency, this desperation to get people to see me. When really, we wanted it to be our parents. To know us, to see us, to draw the true self out. So these true parts of ourselves that have long lived in the shadows, though, that we've pushed down, oh, they have a way of sneaking out. <laughs> kind of like a kind of like a teenager in the you know in the middle of the night um, that you know they're told no from their parents that they can't go out and party and you know or 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 their parents are constantly fighting and they're always in conflict and so the child just sneaks out to get away. So this the same thing happens with these inner parts of ourselves, these dimensions. Anger, sexuality, gender, passion, or personal passions, whatever. They start finding loopholes. They sneak out in the middle of the night through the windows, the cracks of the self. They come out in dreams when we're sleeping, when we're quiet, when we settle ourselves. That's why, that's why some people are constantly moving, where they, they're... they're they, they have to have something going on because if they were to quiet themselves, instinctually they know that all of this pain, all this stuff is going to start surfacing. Or it comes out in our actual behaviors. We start acting out. Our anger that's been suppressed, we now just get angry at everybody, which is, again, that, that, that was me. And so... Um, and so what happens is, as this starts to surface, as, as these push-down parts of ourselves begin to, to arise, there, there's an uprise of these, this inner voice, and it inevitably occurs in order, for us, in order for us to see, to embrace, to become whole. But so often we're terrified of external consequences, such as rejection and abandonment from others, from our lovers or loved ones. And so we engage often in these behaviors secretively. We may look at porn when they're not around and hide it from them. We may go and engage in sex with a prostitute. We may go to a painting class and never tell our dad or mom. We may, it may be that we engage in an illicit affair. Either way, there's a searching for the true self. But there's also hiding that if that was revealed, what it is that I'm trying to look for in myself what is it that I'm trying to find? What is it trying to, that I'm trying to, to connect to and reconnect to? If that was brought to the surface, there is, there is a terror that we'll lose the person in our life. So we push it down because we still remain fused, dependent on the other. But there's this tension that goes on of finding ourselves in secret and holding on to the relationship, terrified of its annihilation. But, in, but eventually this hiding, it reaches a pressurized threshold. And it brings, eventually, just cracks the secret of seal. And it brings exposure to the clandestine acts, to those around. 
And really, it's not even the act itself. It's the secret that causes the greatest pain. That you hid from me. That you didn't tell me. That's where the greatest pain is. So when someone goes then through this harrowing journey of finding themselves, meaning they liberate, they experience this liberation from the external world and a dependency on that and frantic attempts to cure this loneliness or lack inside through means of others, trying to get it through other people, this profound change happens in the inner foundations of ourselves. Where at first we were, uh, for a long time, we were tormented by judgment. And we would often calibrate our behavior, stopping it, changing it, altering it for external acceptance so we could feel at peace in ourselves. Now we engage with these parts of ourselves in a very different way. And so during this odyssey, this hunger awakens right to, in us to go and seek, to discover who we are. And while seeking, we experience this, again, this intangible but intrinsically felt compassionate presence. As I talked about in the whole merciful section, this presence that, that is often offered through other people, genuine guidance from others rather than judgment. And once this presence really becomes internalized and grows in us, we know that we're loved on an intrinsic level. It's deep in our bones. And then this growing awareness dynamically occurs, enabling us to know who we are, our actual voice, and not the voices of others. But, a, but someone who walks with us, draws us to find our voice, confronts us, is real with us, addresses the, the impediments, and dresses, addresses when we're off, our own defensiveness, but they do that in a way to help us find our true self, even though it's painful, even though we might hate them in the moment, even though we might leave and end therapy and end a friendship, that's, that the person that speaks the truth cares deeply. And we need that to find us. And so when this happens, what, what, what takes over is there's this different kind of seeing that takes place. And I don't just mean in an eyeball sort of way, in a, in a visible, visual it's this kind of psychological attunement. We begin to wake up to the messages of truth driving our behaviors. We can see beyond the behavior something. There's, there's a message there. We're aware of the needs and desires pulsating in the midst of our actions. And so we grow increasingly more conscious of our inner worlds. And thus we then become genuine or quote-unquote pure in our hearts, when we're engaging with the world around us. We align with our actual selves. It's an, it's an, uh, I like to call it, it's, a, it's an emotional, psychological, biological harmonization. Our emotions stir in us, right? Move us in a way to take action, and we go. And then we begin to understand and become aware. But we also use our mind to say, oh, something's happening. Ah, there's a message in there. There's guidance. There's direction. I'm going to go seek, or I'm going to wait, or I'm going to pull back, or I'm what? There's this, this more, this fine tunement of listening to that. And we respond out of that. And we feel less and less adrift and lost. And, this, and we realize that this direction and these answers actually stem from inside us, within us, if we trust the prompting. 
And that means sometimes that uh, it'll launch us into the unknown. It breaks us out of the confines. It causes us to change course, even if it's painful to us and others. But it's for something more to come alive in us. So what happens then is we, in this place of genuineness and purity, we bring our whole selves into connection, uncensored, unrestricted, and honest. We trust, we learn to trust our impulses and intuition, and we stay unwaveringly true to this, despite the reactions of our outer environment. Um, there was this movie, God, I can't think of it now. It's on Netflix. Is it called When, when, when They See Us? But it's these boys that were um, in New York that were accused of, of uh, raping a woman that they uh, were wrongfully accused of. And they went to jail. And whenever they would, and they, most of them, and this one particularly, had the most horrific experiences in jail. Um, and, and when it came to parole, they would say, you can get released, but you have to admit to, that you're guilty of the crime. And knowing in themselves that that wasn't the truth, God, I get emotional thinking about it right now. That, that knowing that, that they, they, they clung to that, even though, even though knowing that they were going to say no, that they'd go back, return to their environments that were awful, their, conf- their prison confinement, having to survive in that, or staying in, in, in an isolated cell. But they stayed true to that. And it was a, there was a beautiful outcome at the end. But that's what I mean is that, that we, we, we stay loyal to this. We don't wander away. As we begin to trust this message, we, uh, we, we, there's less deliberation. We know, I got to go do it. Or I, not got to as if I have to, it's I want to do this. So from that, we communicate genuinely. We don't coat the truth with confusing, polluted messages with alternate double meanings, we don't manipulate. Because we don't fear the loss of the other, we can be honest. We can say yes or no and truly mean it. We fully enjoy and indulge uninhibitedly connected with whatever we participate in. And we don't feel ashamed and we don't feel judged in ourselves. And so we, we no longer hide from ourselves in the shadows, we can freely explore our outer and inner worlds. And we understand our actions, our thoughts and desires. And we stay grounded in our truth. And in this process, we uncover the lost parts of ourselves that have lived locked up, that have created really, uh, out of that getting, out of being locked up, it's created an unrelenting anxiety and restlessness. That it, 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 uh, it commandeers our body until we answer, until we follow these inner voices. That there's an anxiety stirring in me that I know is communicating something. Something's coming up. I've had that plenty of times. Often my anxiety was, anger was starting to come up. Or, or even pain. Just sadness, heartbreak, grief. And so... When this happens, when we become more in touch, more connected, more engaged, more tuned to ourselves, when we come to embrace our full selves, every part, nuance, idiosyncrasy, and distinction 
that, that assembles us, that constructs our own personal self, then we enter into this personal union that embraces the world in a deeply connected way, this personal union that first has to happen in ourselves, that we connect to everything in us, that enables us, that inaugurates us to live in the world a very different, connected way. So this purity at a heart level that Jesus is implying that he's talking about, this is what I think he means. It's, it's not a purity that comes through ritualistic washing or increasing uh, our attendance of addiction groups to get better or do all the steps, unless the steps help, but it's not this, it's not, I've got to do this so I can, I can cleanse myself. No. What it is, is that it's an alignment with the truths stirring intuitively within ourselves that are often, these truths that are often conveyed through our symptoms, through our disorders. That's why there's so, you know, um, when I see someone that they've felt so much shame and judgment over their symptoms, um, I look at that as actually they're prophetic. They're truth tellers. These quote-unquote disorders are communicating that there's this, there's a disorder in the system there's something off, and it's stirring up in themselves. It's this disorder that was created in their families. ADHD, anxiety, bipolar at times, that are often diagnosed in kids so, uh, so frequently. That what if, play this out with me, what if actually they're actually um, illuminating something off in the family, in the parents, in the marital dyad? in the way that the parents engage with the children. What if that's coming through in the child itself? That's what I mean. That these disorders are actually beautiful truth-tellers. They're honest. Even if they're, they're more reactionary and, and come out in behavioral form. They're trying to get us to see something but we vigilantly attempt to extinguish. So that's what I mean is that this purity is it's following these truthful messages, listening to them, giving it expression, which I believe naturally results in peace. And I've had these moments where this anger wells up in me. Something feels off in the connection. Something feels off in the way I've been treated. Something, and, and, and even on a very deep level, all this anger has arose in me, arisen, arisen, arose, surfaced, I'm going to say surfaced in me from my childhood that I never got to feel and I expressed it, expressed it to the people that hurt me. And eventually this peace comes. I feel at one again. I feel this tranquility. I feel settled. That's what I mean. This is what purity is. It's this genuineness. It's this honest, true, non-judgmental connection to ourself, this congruity, this alignment. This is what I'm talking about when Jesus is talking about this hunger and thirst for righteousness. This righteousness is to be at one, at union with ourself. So when we, so here's the thing. This is what's cool because I want to then finish up with this last part when he says, you, those uh, that are pure at heart, they'll see God. Well, that's interesting. What the hell does that mean? Well, here's, here's what happens. Here's what I think happens. When we enter into the realms of genuine connection, 
something within us opens up to see the world through this kind of inner radiant light. Think about the, the first or the second story I shared with you. The one where I was sitting in the coffee shop and I saw people very differently. I felt connected to them even if I wasn't uh, actually personally having a conversation, interacting with them. Something in me shifted to where I, I felt this love and warmth and care. That the, the men that I normally would judge, I saw, oh, this is the way they interact. This is cool. God, I love that. That's awesome. So what happens is when we, we find this connection, when, we, when, when we're grounded in ourselves, when there's this harmonization inside through this arduous experience of finding us, this inner radiant light comes up, illuminating our, our understanding Right? illuminating our, our, uh, um, a comprehension in a way that we begin to see and perceive others, that they're also connected beings. And they're trying to find union within themselves. That even people that we've hated, political leaders, that we begin to, not that we can't, not that there isn't some anger and indignance, not at all, but of course there is. But there's also this awareness of, ah, Something else, I can see uh, there's this x-ray vision to understand the person in a very different way. And so this is what shifts in us, is now we begin to see others through this, uh, this perspective that they're, they're connected or they're, they're, they feel disconnected and they're trying to find themselves, to find harmony within, to reconnect or they're doing this because they're in pain. And it's not an excuse. It means we can address it as well. But it, there isn't this distance posture that we take with someone. Of, oh, well, they've slept around a lot, so no, this isn't, uh-uh. This is, ah. Uh, this is, we, we see them on a relational level, on an attachment level, on a, on a, on a dimension of connection. And so where we once judge the external world really out of our own inner judgment that we've absorbed from the people that delivered to us and, and, and the core feelings of disconnection and loneliness inside of ourselves, we now perceive it from an inner foundation of love and compassion that's taken over. So hopefully that makes sense that that's the fuel now. That's the lens. That's what colors life is this deep love and compassion that's developed in us through this really tumultuous journey. And so then what we come to realize is that the divine God that was out there in the heavens somewhere, in the celestial land, some object out there, ah, is now this source of light, existence, love itself. Kind of like the sun is this physical source of light and energy that illuminates and gives nourishment to the earth. This inner light that comes up in us is this divine presence, illuminating what was once shadowed by judgment and fear and the insatiable hunt for the elusive and elusive object to cure our inner ache. It's different. A different or this radiance happens. It's kind of like, um, oh, what was that movie? 
uh, Pleasantville. Pleasantville, right, where it was it was black and white, and then all of a sudden people start kind of breaking out of the, the confines, the lines, the rules and whatnot, and color starts to take over, and there's this tension between the black and white world and the, and the world that's now uh, in, in technicolor that has these vibrant colors. It's like that. It's something awakens in us, and we begin to see things differently, vibrantly, passionately, lovingly, compassionately. And this is what I say, what I call, it's this divine incandescence that enables us to really see the depths and truths and gives nourishment, which I would say is genuine connection to the famished, to the people that are hungry, that are starving, that are lonely, that we offer this. This is the food. This is the bread. This is what they thirst for. Because we have found that nourishment in ourselves. And we can give this and offer this to others in genuine fashion. Not in a dependent, I'm going to do everything for you, but with real, we're honest, we're truthful. But this is what happens is that this divine light turns on. And we could see things, we could see life differently. It's no longer just something ordinary and whatnot and objects. It's, nah, there's a different meaning. It's appreciative. It's considered precious and valuable. The person that we once judged, that we once hated, it, it, it takes on a whole different shape and form in us. That's what I mean. And so this is the result of having become one with ourselves and life and existence. This is what Jesus uh, uh, showed us is that he was so deeply attuned and connected to all of life in himself, he lacked nothing. Because he went through the arduous, tumultuous, difficult, harrowing experiences of finding himself, even in the midst of the seductive pulls to get things from the external world to feel okay. Now he went through the hunger, the deep hunger, to find himself and his message, and his passion that he was shared genuinely in the world. This is what's offered to all of us. And so when we've tapped into this, when we've experienced this, when we find our genuineness, when we align with that, we're now at peace with ourselves. And that, folks, I will end on, and that uh, sets me up for the next portion to be continued.